Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 143rd show. Today's guest is Scott Miller, author of Master Mentors, which uh, the book was fantastic. Uh, Thank you for showing that book. And so, Scott, let's first start with your professional background. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah with my wife and our three young sons, and I spent 25 years as a leader and officer in the Franklin Covey Company. Many of you, of course, know us as the most trusted leadership firm in the world, founded by the iconic author and thought leader Stephen R. Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was the chief marketing officer for a decade there. Uh, 25 years in the leadership business. Before that, I lived and was raised in Orlando, Florida. I worked for the Walt Disney Company for four years on the real estate side until they invited me to leave. That's how it goes <laughs> in Disney. And so where does a single Catholic boy move to? Well, Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics were 25 years ago. I'm of kidding. Course. There were no Catholics in Utah 25 years ago, but my entire career has been in the leadership business. I'm now a podcaster, author like you, Mark. I, I own a literary talent and speaking agency and write and speak for a living. So delighted to be number 143 as my new. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. So what was it like uh, working with Dr. Covey? Uh, Because I read seven habits, of highly effective people. And I talked to you that I put a lot of um, a lot into this social, uh, the emotional bank account. And, uh, and that was actually my favorite book. And uh, what did you learn from him that sticks with you to this very day? Well, first, I'm happy to report that working with Stephen was as you hoped it would be, right? A man of unimpeachable integrity, kindness, character, vision. He passed about a decade ago as the result um, from a head injury and a bicycle accident in his 80th year. I mean, just a remarkable cam uh, career. Uh, his book, of course, has sold close to 50 million copies, The Seven Habits, and it's a, a book that's touched all of us. Stephen was funny. He was kind. He was very, a very... Um, a uh, very focused family man. I think he was you know, a professor by nature and then uncovered, if you will, not discovered, uncovered these mm-hmm. principles that are common to highly effective people. And then he became an iconic, you know, author and influencer. He was a class act. I mean, he taught me so many ideas, those that, of course, relevant in the seven habits that to this day still sells about 5,000 copies a week. It is still a perennial bestseller 10 years after his passing. But I learned a lot about the balance between character and competence, right? You got to have both. You can't be a really trustworthy person, but not have any skills. You can't be highly skilled and be untrustworthy. So I think it's a, it's a good Jiminy Cricket moment to remember if you want to be a highly effective person, you have to have competency both in character and in competence. Yeah, and still some people who are uh, don't lack one of the major ones of those two somehow still rise to the top, which is highly disappointing. Uh, Dr. Covey had nine children. How do you think that impacted the type of mentor and sage advisor he became? And could he have been that person he developed into if he hadn't had such a large family? Kind of feel that's going to have a big impact. That's a complicated question. I, I... I don't know how anybody can have nine children and be a great parent to all of them. So I'll just say that I have three children and I can't imagine having four. So I, I, I'm sure he would not like that answer, but I don't honestly don't know how you have nine children and do all the things that you hoped you would do. But to answer your question, I think having nine children probably allowed him the benefit of recognizing that great leaders are individual leaders. Like they, they individualize their leadership style. My three sons don't need the same kind of love, the same kind of vision, the same kind of discipline. They all need different. So I'm guessing having nine children with his wife, Sandra, who's also passed now, enabled him to appreciate the different passions and strengths and fears and weaknesses and creativities that all of our employees have. And it probably made him a more adept leader 
by having to meet everyone's different styles. I do not encourage having nine children on anyone, but that's my personal preference. I, I'm just curious. He wrote that book when he was in his 50s, right? Seven Habits of Highly he Effective. He, he wrote it. So, it took him about a decade to write that book. I think he launched it when he was 53, 54. But you're right. He wrote it for about 10 years before it actually came out. Yeah. So he had gained enough perspective at that age to be able to write a book like that because it's a very thoughtful book. It's not bullshit, you know, what he writes in that book. I really found it to this day. I still remember it and still have the copy. You know, to, it may not be common knowledge, but what Dr. Covey did was he was a professor, right? Had a PhD and yeah. taught at a local university here. And he was a scholar and a insatiably curious kind of researcher. And he did a several hundred year research study on what made the most successful people the most effective. And he realized these, these ideas of what he called the character ethic and the personality ethic. And that became the basis of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective, Effective People. The first three habits are around personal effectiveness. And the next three habits are around interpersonal effectiveness. And the last habit, of course, being sharpened the saw. But his he doesn't claim to have invented them. He claims to have kind of uncovered them, named them, sequenced them, and written a book about human principles that govern all of our behavior, regardless of age, generation, culture, religion, nationality, industry. He just wrote about governing principles, which is why the book is so timeless. Well, maybe you guys should send a lot of copies to all of Congress right now because they we have done copies. that. We have actually in the past decades, we have trained Congress. I'm not mm -hmm. sure today's Congress is trainable or at least those 20 mm -hmm. or so holdouts. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so let's talk about your book. Why did you write this book and why did you pick the various authors or, or thought leaders um, in this book who appear and who appeared in your podcast? How did you well, end up selecting them? Most important, I got to give a shout out to Giselle's roll top desk. That's beautiful behind you. I love, I love your desk. That's awesome. Nicely. Antiques are back. Okay. Yeah. About the book. I'm the author of a 10 volume, 10 year series called Master Mentors, 30 transformative insights from our greatest minds. Like you, Mark, I am privileged to host a weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where I interview like you, famous celebrities and business titans and best-selling authors, many of the books you can see behind me. And what I found after five years in this podcast was that some of the biggest and best insights didn't happen on air. They kind of happened in the metaphorical green room before or after the interview. And so I wanted to be a bit of a pollinator and aggregator. And so with the permission of uh, 30 guests each year, I write a book called Master Mentors. This is not good to great. This is not built to last. It's a light, easy, pithy read, kind of like chicken soup for the leadership soul called Master Mentors, where I take 30 people with their permission and I write about one insight per person. So 30 chapters, 30 people, 30 insights. And I take an insight that they shared either on or off air and I write a story about it. It might be about being a transition figure or how to solve problems or how to be a better parent or manage your time better or insights on marriage or leadership. It's a very episodic book. Chapter one has nothing to do with chapter four or 16. You can start anywhere and go everywhere. And every chapter is about maybe a nine minute read because that's how I like to read books. You can read the whole book in a couple of hours, but the book is based on 30 guests from that previous year. And I've just released volume two and volume three comes out in the fall every year for the next seven years until I hit 10 volumes in the series. You know, I know I should do that with all these authors I've interviewed because I probably have like five books at least. I'm sure you do. I'm you sure know, you do. I, but, but I advise you not to because it is not an easy task corralling 30 celebrities a year and all of their agents and publicists and attorneys to give you permission. So I advise you write a different book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so did you have a mentor yourself? And if so, who was it? And what did you learn from that? Well, I've, mentor? Had, I've had many mentors in my life. I write about it in the opening of this particular book. I think my biggest mentor was a man named Bruce Williams, who never met me and never knew I was alive. And it's one of the reasons why I've written this book, because I think people's common definition of mentorship is someone on the fourth floor, somebody from the executive suite or the mayor, someone you know and you meet with for coffee once a month for two years. And that's true. And that works and take advantage of that. But I think some of the biggest mentors in our life are people we've never met. 
people whose books we, we read or whose speeches we listen to or her pod, whose podcast we follow. This man named Bruce Williams, I'm going to date myself, back in the 80s, he was a very famous talk radio host. He had a program called The Bruce Williams Show back in the 80s and early 90s. Kind of like, kind of like um, Dave Ramsey meets like Elon Musk. I don't know. He was an entrepreneur. He was a business person. He was a city council member. And every night on AM talk radio from 6 to 9 p.m., he had a talk a radio call-in program, right? People that maybe inherited some money, how do I invest? People that were thinking of buying a second home, people who had gotten a divorce and weren't quite sure how to repair their credit score. It was kind of all things about life, kind of personal finance business focused. Well, when all of my junior high school friends were listening to ABBA and U2, I was listening to the Bruce Williams show, right? Kind of the nerd listening. But after 10 years of three hours a night, five days a week, I learned a ton about business and business acumen and how to how to buy a house and how to form a corporation and how to have a will and all that kind of stuff. So Bruce Williams was my first mentor. And I think it's important to re-say, re I never met him and he never met me. And he passed, not even knowing I was alive, but he had a profound impact on me. I dedicate, dedicate the opening to a guy I never met. You know, it's funny. I think most people think that the mentor is somebody you actually have personal interaction yeah. with, but yeah. I never thought about it that way, yeah. but all of us have probably been influenced by a lot of people, good and bad, but hopefully mostly yeah. good yeah. Uh, from that. But when you're screening for a mentor, if you were advising somebody who's looking to pick a mentor outside of reading the books that you and I are reading for our shows, but what do you, what would you recommend like to your own kids? Hey, you want to pick a mentor? Yeah. Here's what you should look for. What, what do you say, say to that? My advice will surprise you is uh, don't pick the person who's had the most successes. Also pick the person who's had the most messes. If I want to learn how to have a 40-year marriage, I don't go to the guy that's had a 40-year marriage because I don't have his patience, his charisma, his talent. His I, I go to the guy that's had four marriages because I want to know what not to do because I think 80% of success is avoiding the mistakes, walking around the medical metaphorical potholes, right? Oh, you were tempted to do that. Okay, so those are the signs. These decisions led you up to that affair or that bankruptcy or that whatever. So I will tell you, don't naturally go to the person that has the $50 million business. Go to the gal that's had three bankruptcies and is starting over again and learn from her what not to do. And that may seem like a cliche or counterintuitive, but honest to God, I think life is 70 to 80% of just avoiding the mistakes that everybody makes over and over and over again. And most people don't tell you their mistakes. They just tell you, oh, I did this, I did that. But I'd say find the person that's wise enough, humble enough, vulnerable enough, and self-aware enough to say, okay, so let me tell you about all the mistakes I made in my first three businesses. And if you just can avoid doing these things or falling into those traps, go with your passions, go with your joys, you're going to be successful. I have to tell you, I always think that I've learned way more from my mistakes than the successes. I mean, the successes, you're thinking, shit, just everything just fell right for that. But the failures, you go and, and analyze the hell out of that. And all of a sudden, you learn a lot uh, from those mistakes. And, and in history, right, do they teach you so much about the battles that were won or the battles that were lost? and all the takeaways from the battles that were lost, right? I mean, that's what you learn. And I think mentorship is a slippery slope because I'm writing a book about mentorship called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. It comes out in June from HarperCollins. And the biggest piece of advice I give in the book is as a mentor, stop saying, well, if I were you, I would do this. You're not them. Your mentee doesn't have your passions, your skills, your education, your financial upbringing, your connections. And so when you are a mentee looking for a mentor, make sure you pick someone that also has strong self-awareness and emotional maturity, not to try to tell you what they would do, but to give you all the options of what you could do based on your skills, your fears, your passions, your needs. So a lot of people who are on this show right now listening, a lot of them want to be mentors. What skills does the mentor need to have? And you've already listed some of them just now. What skills do you think you need? If you want to go out there and mentor people, what do you need to have? You have to be a disciplined listener. You have to 
check your ego to talk about all of your successes. It's just not helpful, right? I mean, I knew a lot of very famous, wealthy people that I couldn't have done what they could do their way because I don't have their set of skills. I have my set of skills and I don't have their crippling fears. I have my crippling fears. So I'll repeat the concept. As a mentor, you've got to, you've really got to check everything you think you know to be true and be a great listener and a great question asker. So Louise, if you were to do that, Let's talk about all the upsides and maybe all the downsides you might find yourself in. Rick, you're thinking about pursuing this path. Let's talk about what your line of thinking was. What got you to that line of thinking? That doesn't mean you'll ever share your own success because you can question your way into frustration. But I think it's to hold, hold back your desire to fix it, to solve it, to prescribe it. Ask big, broad, open-ended questions. So I see you're thinking about raising some money. Let's talk about all the ups and the downs of what that might look like and the unintended consequences, positive and negative, that you might not see early on. So there's definitely a role to share your experiences as a mentor. But I think the most important assets are patience, listening, asking great questions, and resisting the temptation to prescribe. Well, when I did that, here's what happened to me, because it may or may not have any relevance. It might have supreme relevance, but it also may be very prescriptive based on your set of unique circumstances 8, 10, 12 years ago. I also think that great mentors are cross-industry. If you're looking to open up a hair salon, you may or may not benefit from a mentor in the hair business. I mean, certainly some of that, right? But you might benefit from someone in the retail business or the restaurant business because there are business principles across every industry. So don't just go to the person who owns a hair salon on how best to open up a hair salon. Go to people who go to hair salons and ask them, what do you like? What do you not like? Why have you stayed for 10 years? Why did you go to 10 different hair salons over 10 years and never showed any loyalty? Broaden your perspective of what you think a mentor might bring to you. And as a mentor, broaden your perspective on what you think the prescription needs to be for your mentee. Sounds a lot like therapy. (laughs) Sounds like leadership. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh zader musad is that how you pronounce his name Z- zafar zafar masood you're forgiven it's a pakistani name zafar uh-huh. masood so he was ceo of a bank in uh punja and can you talk about his amazing life and altering experience he had and how that changed him i thought that was a great story in your book so i opened each book with 30 mentors he happens to be number 31 so volume one was one through 30 and volume two is 31 through 60. So Zafar Masood is Pakistani. He is in fact still the CEO of the Bank of Punjab. It's a, a book, a, a bank kind of like, you know, Bank of America or Citibank, right? With branches all across Pakistan. You know, Pakistan is one of the largest democracies in the world. I say democracy, but it's a very large um, country, 250, I think maybe even million citizens. Well, as the CEO of a bank, he actually flew a lot around the nation of Pakistan. And one particular day, I think it was May of 2020, two months after the pandemic started, when planes were still just getting back in the air, he was taking a fairly typical flight from, I think it was Lahore to Karachi. It'd be like flying from Orlando to Atlanta, right? Maybe two hours. And he always sits in seat 1B, first row, aisle seat, always sits there takes these flights every couple of days of the week, bopping across the nation, visiting banks. And this particular day, he got to the airport early and recognized that the airline had put him in seat 1A, first class seat, but by the window. No, 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 I need to be one seat 1B. Well, it was assigned to someone and through some finagling, he got moved over to 1B. Plane takes off, no problems, falls asleep, gets ready to land in, I think it is Lahore. And has a really rough landing, touches down and like has this rough landing and takes back off again. Well, we've all been in that situation at least once where you had a, a landing kind of aborted. Rarely did the plane touch the ground, right? Either the winds or there's a traffic pattern, the plane circles and take comes back. Well, what happened is as the plane landed and took back off, it was such a violent landing, the cockpit door flung open. This is, this is in the pandemic, this doesn't happen. And you could see the horror on the pilot's eyes. Well, the plane comes back in for a second landing. And what what they didn't know at the time was the pilots of this commercial airline forgot to lower the landing gear. And the plane hit the ground and damaged the fuselage and the engines. And so when it came back in, it crash landed and 98 people died. 
Zafar was one of only two people who survived this plane crash. 98, all the crew, grandparents, children, professionals, people on vacations, 98 people died, two lived. Zafar was in seat 1B. His seat was ejected from the airline in the air, and he landed upright on a building, still seat belted into his chair, unconscious on fire. His seat lands on the fifth floor of a building, slides down, and drops 15 feet onto the trunk or the, the, the hood of a car. There's two young guys in the car turning it on to go to work and all the windows blow out and they come to and they see a guy on fire, alive, unconscious, upright in an airline chair on their, on their hood. They get out, they rescue him while this whole area is engulfed in fuselage and flames and this fire is coming in. They rescue him. He lives to tell about it. And he talks in the book about survivor's guilt. Why him? And what's next? Like, what do you do now? Do you go to Chick-fil-A? Not in Pakistan. Do you come home and, and hug your kids? Do you cash out your 401k? Do you keep work? Like, what do you do after you've survived a plane crash where everybody but you and one others die? So in the book, I write about how to decide what's next in your life without having to experience the tragedy of what Zafar Massoud did. And I write a light, pithy story about the next day my son comes home from school. At the time, he was 10. And the exercise was to talk about his family traditions. My oldest son, I see him writing down, we go to church on Sundays, we go to the country club for brunch, and we sometimes watch movies. And I'm thinking, what the? Those aren't traditions. Yeah. Those are like family activities. Those are activities. Those aren't traditions. Oh my gosh, I got to get my life together, right? Traditions are like zip lighting at the, at the cabin in the summertime by the lake or catching fireflies or whatever. These are traditions. And so in the book, I talk about maybe the value of discerning between traditions and activities and how do you determine what's next for you based on your values? And so that's just one of 30 chapters that are like that kind of jarring in the book. So how was he changed by this? Well, so Zafar Masood is single, doesn't have a family. And so he really talks about, he's a parent, parents and siblings, but he talks about how it changed his leadership style as a CEO of a bank to become much more empathetic and to be much more patient and loving and caring and to recognize that he's doing more than just earning people interest on their money or providing loans. It has transformed the way he sees his role as a people leader putting people first and being much more patient and kind and considerate. I mean, he still is a leader of a bank and has to hire and fire and make tough decisions, but you got to kind of read the book to find out the good stuff. Yeah, no, no I enjoyed it. Um, what, what's a transformational insight? What is that? I think it's something that stops you in your tracks, right? All of us have these deeply ingrained behaviors that we repeat over and over and over and over again that are subconscious, whether it's interrupting, whether it's one-upping people, whether it's talking nonstop like me. We, we all have these deeply ingrained, inculcated belief systems and behaviors in our lives. And a transformative insight is something that stops you in your tracks and forces you to change the way you look at something. It might even be the way your neighbor voted. How could you possibly vote for him or her? Or it might be the way you view a religion or you view a value your spouse has. But you can't believe that's what they value. How, do you, how could you think that way? And often I don't think they're, I don't think they're, I don't think they have massive gravity. I think it's sometimes small things. I once heard a quote, everything in life is black or white until it impacts someone you love. You go ask a parent, of a transgender child, what they thought about transgender children before their child came to them at despair. You go ask someone who's a member of the LGBT community or is a parent of that or a grandparent. We all have these black and white opinions until they impact someone you love. And it's remarkable how quickly we have a transformational insight when it comes to life or death struggles and experiences. You know, Vince, it, uh, there's a great book on Vince Lombardi and his brother was gay. Uh, you know, 
and, and this goes back to the late 50s, early 60s. And when he took over the Green Bay Packers, there was one of the Packers they thought was gay and a couple of the players wanted him off the team. Yeah. And so Vince Lombardi brought the team uh, together and said to them, uh, I'm not going to have that. And the two guys who brought that up, they're cut. And that was the end of the story. And nobody ever brought that up again. But here he was brought up in a strong Catholic background where homosexuality was frowned upon. Yeah. But when his brother came out and said he was, changed Vince Lombardi's whole view wow. uh, yeah. of life and the way he managed people. So I thought it, that was it interesting. Is, it, it is, those two topics aren't of a special importance in my personal life. I'm the son of three boys. And so who knows yeah. what I will face, but it is one of the most profound things I've ever heard. Everything in life is black or white until it impacts someone you love. No question. Um, throughout the book, many of your stellar examples talk about the need to be more compassionate, caring, focused on uh, family and faith. Why, uh, why was this so hard for these people? And did it take something significant happening in their lives to make them realize this, like the last example? And also, did you find out or did they notice a drop in performance once they became more self-aware? Like, did it enhance their performance or, or, or did it reduce it? You know, because they all of a sudden potentially became a little bit softer. Okay, that was a nine-part question. So I'm going <laughs> to answer just one of those. <laughs> That's a compliment to you. Here's what I'd say. Here's what, here's what I would ahead. say. Um, I'm getting ready to interview a very famous author who's Australian. Her name was, I think, um, Bronnie Ware. She's an Australian uh, hospice nurse that wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. If you have not bought this book, go buy it today. The Five Regrets of the Dying. She's a hospice nurse. Paperback book, $12. Who knows? Who cares? Buy this book and read it before you buy Master Mentors. The reason I mention that is because it's important to remember every company is now a technology company. Whether you sell tulips or lingerie, whether you sell software or syringes, every company is now a technology company. And every company is in the same business. They're in the people business. As a leader, you are in the relationship business. I don't care if you've got a chemical engineering degree or you're a software analyst, or you're a marketing, as a leader, you are in the relationship business. And your core competency, your core value to your employer, to your company, is your ability to develop mutually trustworthy relationships. And that will require you to move outside of your comfort zone, to have high courage conversations, to know what it's like to be in a meeting with you, to know what it's like to be led by you, to know what it's like to lead you. Hell, to know what it's like to be married to you. Go ask your wife or your spouse or your ex-spouse, what's it like to be married to me? You'll get a whole lot of you know what. But the reason <laughs> I answer your question this way is because all of us are in the relationship business. And it doesn't come easy for all of us. Coding does not come easy for me. Reading a P&L does not come easy for me. Managing margin does not come easy for me. Just like managing relationships doesn't come easy for me. I'm kind of an anxious person. When I'm nervous, I talk a lot. I'm uncomfortable with silence. I hate cocktail parties. I, so for me, I, I'm a fairly friendly guy. I'm fairly charismatic, but developing relationship is a little bit hard for me. So I'm answering your question a little bit differently, Mark, but this is how I want to answer it. At the end of the day, I'd argue if you're a spiritual person, your most valuable asset is your soul. If you're not a spiritual person, your most valuable asset is probably your reputation. At the end of the day, your, your relationships are what makes all of that work or not work. And so I would just remind and implore all of your viewers and listeners today to ask yourself, do you agree that you're in the business of relationships, recruiting, retaining talent, keeping employees, validating them, giving them tough love feedback on their blind spots, sitting them down and saying, hey, I need to have a high courage conversation with you. I might get the words wrong, but my intent is to help you see some of your blind spots. We all have them, including me. As a parent, as a grandparent, as a son-in-law, as a neighbor, as a committee member, you are in the relationship business. And if you want to get better out of it, at, at it, you got to know what's it like to be in a meeting with you. 
What's it like to be in a Zoom call with you? What's it like to be in a committee with you? What's it like to um, play pickleball with you? Which means you got to ask. And when they tell you what it's like to play pickleball with you, you know, yeah, 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 but Mark drives me crazy. Yeah, but my husband, no, 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 no. Just, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that kind of stings, but thank you. Thank you for caring enough about me to kind of tell me the truth. Hey, can I ask you a question? When I do that, what do you think's going on with me? Am I like, am I nervous? Do I seem anxious? Do I seem over my head? I mean, I know you're not a psychiatrist. I'm going kind of deep in this, but I, I just implore you, ask for feedback from others and don't refute it, deny it, dispute it, or deflect it. Just say, oh my gosh, that's horrifying. But thank you for liking me enough to tell me that. Can we talk more about that? You will transform your ability to build relationships. I think that's why a lot of relationships uh, go sideways is for that lack of honesty, but in a delivered in a caring way uh, that isn't like a baseball batter. It's an art. It's an art, right? Having high courage conversations where you declare your intent by using the phrase, hey, Louise, I'm going to give you some feedback today. I've noticed some things that you've been doing in meetings. and I think it's starting to impact your influence here. First, Louise, I want you to know my intent is not to diminish you or embarrass you. My intent is not to railroad you out of the company. My intent is to provide you some feedback on some things you are doing that I don't think you are aware of that are damaging your brand. And if I don't use the right words, I want to ask for like pre-forgiveness or a do-over. I just want to help you understand some of the things you're doing or saying that are having not only a bad impact on your brand, but on our company culture, and Louise, if they continue, it's going to become a bigger problem. And so it's, it's, it's practicing that and delivering it in a straightforward but humane way where you balance courage with consideration and diplomacy. Yeah, it's funny. When I would hire people, I would tell them, they'd ask me, how could, how would I get fired? And I would say, you know, not giving your best effort. But I said, One of the ways you get fired is not being honest with me about my own performance. If you don't tell me what you think, uh, and I go and drive the car into the ditch, that's not very helpful. So we have no. a, a question from the audience. Speaking yeah. of blind spot, what's a blind spot that you think many companies have in helping to drive effective leadership? Tom, I love you. Here's the biggest problem. In most organizations, we recruit the wrong leaders. In most companies, the only way to earn more money, have more influence, uh, get promoted is to lead people. And not everyone should be a leader of people. This is bunk. Not everyone is a leader. Not everyone is an anesthesiologist. Not everyone is a CPA. Not everyone is a commercial airline pilot. Not everyone should be a leader of people. And what happens in most companies, Tom, is you promote the top salesperson to be the sales leader. You promote the most creative digital designer to run the marketing department. You promote the most effective phlebotomist to run and lead all the phlebotomists. No, stop promoting the people that are best at their job. Because you are the best salesperson has zero correlation to whether or not you are the best sales leader. Here's a great example. I was the top salesperson in my division of Franklin Covey for years. I took the Gallup Strengths Finder assessment, right? And my top strengths are competition and significance. These are extraordinary strengths to have in your salespeople. You want them to be competitive and you want them to feel important by being on the top of the revenue chart. These are outrageously inappropriate skill sets to have for a sales leader. You do not want your sales leader having competition and significance as their key talents. So my answer to your question, Tom, is you need to be very deliberate around the kind of people you recruit and promote into leadership. You need to say to them, hey, Louise, you're crushing it. You are like our top performer, 16 quarters, and we have a leadership position opening up in the future. And I'm not sure if it's right for you or not, but I want to talk to you around what it would look like if you were to take this new role. Louise, let's look at all of your strengths. Let's do a T-chart. On this side, Louise, these are like nine things you do really well. And Louise, can I tell you, you literally will need to stop doing six of them overnight in order for you to become a great leader. Because these these things you do really well will not serve you well as a leader of people. And also, Louise, here's like 14 things you're going to have to learn to do as a leader that you're not doing right now. 
nor would I expect you to, but you're going to have to learn these fundamental mindset and behavior changes as you move into leadership. Tom, my point is, I think what happens is we lure highly competent individual contributors to become leaders of people, and they bring those individual contributor skills with them, and no one tells them that what got you here will be well received over there. And so you got to have those tough conversations. The number one question to determine when you're promoting someone into leadership, do they take delight in the success of those around them? And not everyone does. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I did not take delight in the success of those around me. I was petty. I was jealous. I was vindictive. And sometimes I still am because I'm human and I'm self-aware. In my 40s and 50s, as I'm more confident in my skill set, I do take delight in the success of those around them. But that's a key differentiator. Long answer to your nine-part question. (laughs) Well, isn't that why lots of great athletes make terrible coaches? It's so, and lots of not great athletes make great coaches. And I hope that was the collection of my 30 years dedicated in leadership. I hope that was a good reminder to some of you. So how hard is it for a type A personality that are so driven to do great things professionally to take a step back and refocus their lives? Uh, What's your recommendation for people whose professional life is all consuming based on what you learned from the people you interviewed? Well, first of all, that's insulting. How dare you think I would have any knowledge on what a type A personality would be like? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Guilty as charged. I don't know the answer to that. I... I think if you remind yourself that you're in the relationship business, even if you're, you know, retired, even if you have a side hustle, perhaps you're a stay-at-home full-time parent, maybe you're single, you are still in the relationship business with your neighbors and your friends and your committee members and your church or your mosque or your synagogue or, or being a customer at a store. You're still in the relationship business. So I would remind you all, nothing is more important than the relationships in your life, your ability to apologize to someone, to offer an excuse-free apology, excuse-free apologies, where you say, I was wrong, I'm embarrassed, I'm sorry this took so long, where you're able to not always opine on every topic, where you have a difference between what you think and what you say and a filter between the two of them. I'm answering your question a little bit differently, but when you read the book, the five regrets of the dying, it will fundamentally reorganize where you place your priorities and they should all congeal around relationships. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, you write about the transition figure and how the successful business guy uh, paid for Bobby Herrera and his brother's dinner after yeah. a high school basketball game that they played and won the big game. You gave What's away the, trans- the punchline, Mark. Go ahead. Keep going. No, you gave away the punchline. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to talk about that. What, what's a transition figure and how did this kind of gesture from one of his teammates affect his life? I love that you're asking this question, Mark. I think it's a great way to bring home the conversation we've had for the last you know, 40 minutes. Um, a transition figure is someone that enters your life that changes self-defeating habits and behaviors and thoughts. They literally transition you into a new way of thinking, living. Might've been a grandparent, might've been a neighbor, might've been a high school coach or teacher. There's a mentor in the book, Master Mentors, number 32, a man named Bobby Herrera has now become a very successful entrepreneur. Um, Latino by race, family was a Mexican family that moved to the US to work on a farm in New Mexico. Bobby's father, got a job as a farmhand and the farmer said, yeah, bring your family over. And they showed up with 14 kids (laughs) and they all had a path to citizenship. Bobby was raised in a, in a very um, uh, funds, scarce family, a family of very scarce means. You can imagine 14 kids uh, as a Latino farm working family in New Mexico. And he and his brother played high school basketball. Now listen to this story very carefully. Bobby Herrera and his brother played high school basketball. And every night when there was an away game, the bus stopped at a restaurant after the game, win or lose, and everybody went in and had dinner. My sense is it wasn't Ruth's Chris. It was more like the Sizzler, right? Like a $6 burger or 
something like yeah. that. And every night, Bobby and his brother stayed on the bus while the entire team went in to have dinner because in the Herrera family, there was not enough money to both play sports and go to dinner. And so the Herrera brothers sat on the back of the bus and opened up their brown bag and ate their dinner on the bus every night. Imagine how humiliating that would be for anybody. I I can't tell the story without getting emotional because uh, that's not how I was raised, but it's how I want to raise my boys. And so every night the Herrera brothers stayed on the bus until this one particular night when everyone was in the restaurant and one of the team members' fathers reboarded the bus, a very successful entrepreneur in town, and walked back to the Herrera brothers. No one saw him. No one knew. And he said to Bobby and his brothers, hey, gentlemen, I want you to be my guest tonight. I want you to join me in the restaurant with your team members. Dinner's on me. Gave him 10 bucks and said, no one needs to know. And in return, all I want you to do is make something of yourself to pay it forward to someone else in life. And I'm getting emotional because the power this man had on Bobby Herrera, Bobby said at the age of 16, it was the first time in his life he'd ever felt seen by someone else. But that that man would come back there with no pomp and circumstance, didn't tell anybody, didn't show anybody, walked back and gave them both money and said, come in here and join us. No one needs to know. Go make something of yourselves. And Bobby said, you know what? The guy didn't give him a college scholarship, but it was the first time in his life he'd ever felt seen by someone else. Bobby went on to join the army for four years, became this multi-million dollar successful entrepreneur, wrote a book called The Gift of Struggle. Buy this book, The Gift of Struggle. Small book, you can read it in an hour. It tells the story of 25 years later when he launched this book, had a big launch party. He found the father 25 years later. He was still alive. His name was Harry Teague. He flew him out to the book party and told this story in front of hundreds of people. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Harry Teague flies back home the next day, calls Bobby and said, I remember that day. I had no idea. Bobby, You've made my life worth living. You've made me feel as if my life had some meaning. And the point of this story is everybody who has reboarded the bus for you once in your life. Everybody has made you feel seen. Maybe it was a high school guidance counselor. Maybe it was a swim coach. Maybe it was the youth minister at your church. Someone made you feel seen. And regardless of your financial power, your positional power, your title, you have the ability to reboard someone else's bus and make them feel seen. It might be just walking up to someone in your bridge club and say, you know what? I love how clean you keep your car. You're so well organized. Or I love how disciplined. I love that you go to every one of your great grandkids lacrosse games. You have the power to make someone else feel seen at the end of the day in life. Everybody has two needs, to feel heard and to feel seen. Go get it done. One book, uh, this is a question from the audience. One book that had a big impact on me was Napoleon Hill's Thinking. Mark, you cut out a little bit. I can't hear you. Your internet. Mark, I'm sorry, the internet cut out. Can you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Uh, One of the the people in the audience uh, wrote, one book that had a big impact on him was Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Uh, He says, I see your books having the same impact on future leaders. Do you see any parallels or similarities between the theories in your books and the theories in Think and Grow Rich? Good comparison. Chuck, Chuck, from your post to my 401k, that is outrageously not an accurate comparison. Uh, But I thank you for the compliment. Chuck, here's what I think. Uh, Here's how I'm going to answer the question. Um, All of us have deeply inculcated, inculcated belief systems on how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see people who voted for Trump, how we see people who voted for Biden. All of us have deeply ingrained belief systems typically ingrained in us as children by our parents, by our elementary school teachers, by our our, um, siblings. And these deeply inculcated mindsets and belief systems impact the way we think. 
because how we see the world is how we operate in the world. What we do is how we behave and how we behave is what we get, right? See, do, get, see, do, get. And so my advice is, as you read Napoleon Hill's book, there's a lot of you know references to our paradigms, our belief systems, the way we see the world and how nimble, how agile are at you, are you at changing your mind? I think a leadership competency is being willing to change your mind. Being a parent, being a spouse, being a grandparent is, it doesn't mean you compromise your morals, it doesn't mean you change your ethics, but just being able to be open to a different way of thinking. You know, most people say, I got 30 years of experience. No, you probably have one year of experience perfected 29 times. <laughs> so my advice to you all is just to remember a relationship competency is being able to change your mind. That doesn't mean that you're that kind of leader that just agrees with the last person you met in your office or the loudest person or the most persuasive person because no one wants to work for that kind of leader. But are you mature enough to say, gosh, you know what? I've thought about it this way for so many years. That's a sane person. That's a logical person. He sees it so differently than me. He must know something I don't know, even though I think I know everything. That's what I would say would be the the, um, the comparison or the similarity on Napoleon Hill's book is to constantly challenge your deeply inculcated belief systems. By the way, Chuck buys every single book of every single author who's been on this show. So he will be buying your book. Well, thank you, Chuck, because I've written seven. So you just made me $30. <laughs> so because books chapters, don't pay very well, but thank you, Chuck. I love you. <laughs> uh, it's a, yeah, it's so about sharing. Uh, one of your chapters features uh, Marie uh, Farlow. Is that Forleo, how? Forleo, yeah. Forleo, author of Everything is uh, Figurable. And one of the interesting things you wrote was figuring out what is worth your time and which one and uh, which is one of most valuable commodity is your time. What is your calculus for figuring this out and how can others adapt it? You know, what's the best way of figuring out really what's worth your time? Because you're right. Mark, you think I'm smarter than I am because these are multi-part questions. Uh, here's how <laughs> I'll answer this. So the author is Marie Forleo, and her book is Everything is Figureoutable. In fact, I'm looking, it's right behind me here. Uh, right, right, right. I can't figure out there. I, I can't do it backwards. Right there. That's her book. Everything right, is Figureoutable. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. The book is about the title, Everything in Life is Figureoutable. Now, if you are on hospice with four days left in life because you have pancreatic cancer, you probably need to make sure you are in the relationship repair business, not in the everything is figureoutable business. All of us are going to die. It's true. But here's what I love about Marie's book is it basically is one of the biggest lessons that Dr. Covey imparted in me. I'm going to answer your question a little bit different than you asked it, Mark, but I love the question. Dr. Covey used to teach us in the company a concept called using your R and your I, your R and your I, your resourcefulness and your initiative. And it probably is the biggest skill that I am teaching our three young sons that are eight, 10, and 12 is to use your resourcefulness and your initiative. Dad, where's my backpack? Dad, what time is um, this? Dad, where is this? Dad, how do I do that? I, and then my boys now, my eight-year-old says, I know, I know, use my R and I, my R and my I, resourcefulness and initiative. And in essence, you know, as leaders, I think a lot of the time we like to rush in and save the day. For a lot of us, it's where we get our validation as the rescuer, as the protector. Not many of us admit that. I love a good crisis. The adrenaline, the dopamine. I love to rush in and save the day. I do my best work in crisis mode. And if one doesn't exist, I'll cook one up. <laughs> I love cooking. I mean, you know, Friday night, six o'clock, I'm in the car honking the horn for my wife to come down to go to our 615 reservation four blocks away. <laughs> She gets in the car and she's like, seriously, you're honking the horn at me? It's three blocks away. It's Friday night. <clears throat> I thrive on crises. I thrive on fixing things and, and the adrenaline of that. And I think as a leader, when you teach your team members, as a parent, when you teach your children to use their resourcefulness and their initiative, they draw upon their creativity, their problem-solving skills. And in fact, then everything 
is indeed figure outable. Use your R and your I. So what's the difference between self-worth, self-esteem, and self-confidence? One of the mentors in the book is Sean Covey, one of Dr. Covey's sons. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. This is the most uh, best-selling leadership book in history for for, um, our youth, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. Sean and I were colleagues on the executive team for a decade here, and he is now the president of the education division for the Franklin Covey Company. And I moved back from Chicago to Mothership in Salt Lake about 15 years ago. And Sean wrote a book called The Six Most Important Decisions You'll Ever Make. It's also a book for teenagers, phenomenal book. And in it, he talks about the difference of your self-worth, your self-confidence and self-esteem. And it became the focus of one of my chapters because I think most of us use these words interchangeably. Self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-worth. And they're very different. Sean, who, although we don't share the same faith, is a very religious person. And he believes that your self-worth is God-given. Or if you're not religious or spiritual, creator-given. That everyone has the same self-worth. No one can minimize it. No one can exaggerate it. No one can change your self-worth. Your self-worth as a human is the same as Gandhi, as the same as Joseph Biden or Donald Trump or Matthew McConaughey or Arena Huffington or pick your favorite people in the world. Everyone has the same self-worth. It's creator given. And I found that to be insightful because once you set aside the fact that no one can build or lessen your self-worth, it is the same as everyone else's. Now you can focus on your self-esteem and your self-confidence, which other people can impact if you let them. I'd encourage you to read the chapter about that to figure out how best you can focus on your self-esteem and your self-confidence because you cannot change your self-worth. So I like this. In the section on Guy Kawasaki, you quote him uh, saying, the future cost of short-term kindness. Kindness isn't always the best approach. What, what, what do you mean by this? You know, there's a very famous author named Brene Brown. Everybody's heard of Brene Brown, her books, Dare to Lead, or Netflix series, um, a psychologist who is an expert on shame, regret, self-worth. Brene Brown has a uh, Brene Brown has a phrase where she says, clear is kind. I'm going to repeat it. Clear is kind. Reminds me of a phrase that one of our co-founders said, which is nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I'm going to repeat that. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. You thought I was going to do this and I thought you were going to do that. I never intended to do that and you never intended to do that, but we both thought each other were or were not because we lacked the courage to move outside of our comfort zone and discuss the undiscussables, whether it is the quote to have your car washed or the quote to have your tree taken down or what you did or did not expect to do with baking all the brownies for the block party. This quote, which is, you know, being kind and being gentle isn't always the right thing. Sometimes you got to talk straight. Sometimes you've got to move outside your comfort zone and say, my intent is not to hurt your feelings, but I need to tell you, I never said I would do that. And I have no intention of doing that. And I need to tell you why. And I hope we can remain friends, but I need to set some clear boundaries and clarify some expectations you have of me that are unrealistic, that I never committed to. So I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes we phone that in and these things never get better right? They never clean themselves up. You've got to, you've got to recognize that the short-term benefit that comes from sometimes being kind metastasizes like a, um, what's that thing in the, in the, in the desert, the hairball, what's that called? The Oh, the tumbleweed? The tumbleweed becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Interpersonal conflict never resolves itself other than death. So also in the section with Guy Kawasaki, and I like his books, and I've uh, met him a few times. He's a super interesting guy. 
he, in many cases, it takes courage to quit. What, what is meant by that? And how do you know when it's uh, the right time to quit? Like, it's like a boxer taking too many shots to the head. But for entrepreneurs, you feel the end, the, uh, feel the end of the tunnel, no matter yeah. how dark, there's always light. Yeah. How do you so, know when to? So Chuck, yeah. get out your credit card because here comes a book recommendation. If you don't know who Guy Kawasaki is, don't confuse him with Robert, Robert Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki wrote the finance books. This is Guy Kawasaki, an early founder at Apple and an entrepreneur. He wrote many books, including this book called Wise Guy. W-I-S-E-G-U-Y. His name is Guy Kawasaki. I strongly encourage you to buy the book Wise Guy. It's basically a compendium of, I don't know, 50 short chapters of lessons he's learned in life. It is a masterpiece. Wise Guy. In this book, he talks about how, you know, this adage of being a quitter is so unhealthy. They're absolutely are times when the best thing to do is quit. I think his example was he quit law school where his parents who were Pacific Islanders, he's, I believe, Hawaiian by birth and Polynesian by ethnicity, very strong work ethic. His parents scraped and and scratched to get him to Stanford and he quit. And he just reminds us that um, sometimes quitting is the right thing to do. Quitting a job, quitting a relationship, quitting a friendship. You know, I recently saw a social media meme that said something like, not every relationship needs to be long-term. Some people are meant to come and go in your life. And you are also meant to come and go in others' lives. And for me, I've been strongly raised in a sense of, of loyalty and forgiveness and that friendships are forever. No, some friendships are meant to come and go. You are meant to quit some things. And so you decide, you decide when you quit. You decide perhaps sometimes quitting is winning because you're on the wrong path and you need to bail out immediately. And even if that has consequences for others, now you need to own those consequences and you need to be able to speak about them and own up to them. But I love this idea. Sometimes quitting is winning. I agree. Uh, Michael Hyatt wrote a book, Free to Focus, A Total Pro- uh, Productivity System to Achieve More by Doing Less. Yeah. You explain this in this chapter. Uh, please tell the audience how that can be achieved because we all want to achieve that. And what is the mistake most people make that can mostly be easily rectified? Mark, I feel like you've read my book. Thank you for having such thoughtful questions. I know mm-hmm. we've got three minutes left. Um Quality is always better than quantity. More is not better. Better is better. More is not better. Better is better. My my collective learning from all the successful people on this podcast is the most successful people are the ones that say no the most. It's a common business competency. The most influential, successful people are the people who learn to say no the most frequently. And I think you got to ask yourself, why do you say yes? Are you looking for validation? Are you looking for, you know, more opportunity? Are you not confident in your skills or in your whatever? So my, my, my answer to your question is, I think the most productive people, people who manage their time the best, are the ones that exercise the courage to say, no, I can't do that. No, I won't do that. No, not now. Because I have a I have a stronger priority that means more to me, that will return bigger impact on my economics, on my time, on my legacy, on my relationships. It's something that I struggle with, vastly struggle with. Last question. Yes. Last question. Um, what is a high-value decision, and how do you recognize one? Yeah, a high value decision is something that brings you disproportionate return on your input. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I focus on this or should I focus on that? A high value decision means that by making this decision, the results of it will bring you disproportionate value to your life. I'm faced with hundreds of decisions every day, so are you, thousands subconsciously, but your most valuable asset next to your reputation is your time. And it's finite and limited. 
So you've got to build the discipline to know how to differentiate between a low value and a high value decision. Scott, thank you so much. The hour went super fast. You don't have any energy. I'm amazed that you get through the day. I got lots of energy. Yeah, uh, I know that. Thank you so much. Your book you, is fabulous. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get it. And it's going to encourage them to buy all these other people's books as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Buy The Gift of Struggle. Buy The Five Regrets of the Dying. Buy Wise Guys. And then check it. There's still um, room on your credit card. Buy Master Mentors, Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3 coming out in the fall. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. Scott, have a great weekend. Best of luck to you with your books. You as well. Thank you, sir. Bye, everybody. Have a great weekend. See you next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.